Hi, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante. You know this podcast. I don't have to do this whole song and dance, do I? In this podcast, we're walking through the comedy, Dante's masterwork, passage by passage. And this podcast is about Inferno, Canto 5, the second circle of hell, lines 52 through 87. Whoa, a big chunk today. So we're going to get through this passage. It's a long chunk. Let me just set it up where it was, where we were, and where we left them (laughs) in hell. There may or may not be a precipice they're standing on. This is in the last episode. There's some translation problems here. There's some line possible corruptions going on. So uh, they may or may not be on a precipice, but they're standing there looking at the lust of who are being blown about by unbelievably fierce winds. And Dante asks his guide, Virgil, who are these people and who's being blown about? And he can't make them out. Notice that he could make them out in the neutrals, but here he doesn't seem to be able to recognize who's on the wind. So he asks Virgil that question. That's intriguing right there, that problem of recognition. He asks Virgil that question and Virgil gives a response. If you want to see this passage, it's my translation of the Tuscan. Uh, you can look it up on my website, markscarpo.com uh, or walkingwithdante.com under a header, Walking with Dante, and you can find there the passage. So without any further ado, here's the passage. The first of those whose stories you want to know, he then told me, was empress of a polyglot world. She was so rotted by the vice of treachery that she made lust legit in her laws to blot out the shame she'd brought on herself. She is Semiramis. We read that as his wife, she succeeded Ninos to the throne and held the land that the Sultan now rules. Next is she who offed herself for love and ripped up her faithfulness to the ashes of Sicius. And then there's raunchy Cleopatra, Look at Helen, around whom so many horrid times revolved. And look at that great Achilles, who waged a final battle with love. Look at Paris, Tristan. And he pointed out more than a thousand shadows and named them too, every one of whom love had cut off from our life. After I heard my teacher name the ladies of old and their knights, pity grabbed me and I was almost lost. I began, poet, I really want to speak with those two who go together and seem so light in the wind. And he to me, you will see them when they get closer to us, then beg them by the love that drives them and they will come to you. Right when the wind bent them close to us, I spoke up, oh worn out souls, come talk to us if no one disallows it as doves are drawn to their sweet nest with their wings open and firm, summoned by their desire, moving on the air, wanting to land, just so these spirits slipped away from the flock near Tido and came to us through the malevolent air. That's how strong my endearing cry was. And we're going to leave it right there. We're going to leave it with the arrival of the two that are so light on the wind. You know, this passage is so complicated. Let me try it again, just to let it settle just a minute. Back to Virgil. The first of those whose stories you want to know, he then told me, was empress of a polyglot world. She got so rotted by the vice of lechery that she made lust legit in her laws to blot out the shame she'd brought on herself. 
She is Semiramis. We read that as his wife, she succeeded Ninos to the throne and held the land that the Sultan now rules. Next is she who offed herself for love and ripped up her faithfulness to the ashes of Sycheus. And then there's raunchy Cleopatra. Look at Helen, around whom so many horrid times revolved, and look at the great Achilles who waged a final battle with love. Look at Paris, Tristan, and he pointed out more than a thousand shadows and named them to every one whom love had cut off from our life. After I heard my teacher name the ladies of old in their nights, pity grabbed me, and I was almost lost. I began, poet, I really want to speak with those two who go together and seem so light in the wind. And he to me, you will see them when they get closer to us. Then beg them by the love that drives them and they will come to you. Right when the wind bent them close to us, I spoke up, oh worn out souls, come talk to us if no one disallows it. As doves are drawn to their sweet nest with their wings open and firm, summoned by their desire, moving on the air, wanting to land, just so these spirits slipped away from the flock near Dido and came to us through the malevolent air. That's how strong my endearing cry was. Okay, a tough passage, and it's in two parts, basically. You could probably hear it. There's the Virgil part, which is the catalog, the list of all of the people out on the wind. Hmm, seven of them, actually. And then he says he named more than a thousand, so at least seven of them out on the wind. And then there's the second section in which the pilgrim speaks up. This whole passage is just rife with interpretive knots. <laughs> Not so much the first bit with Virgil, although a little bit. It's when the pilgrim enters it again that it it gets very thorny. So let's just take this in two parts. First Virgil and then the pilgrim. Virgil offers a catalog, a list of those on the wind. And this list is highly structured. It goes from Semiramis, who we'll talk about in a minute, Queen of Nineveh of Assyria, all the way down to Tristan, a figure from medieval romances, King Arthur kind of stuff. So it's it's structured temporally, and it's structured in other ways too. I want to talk that through. But it's a very careful list of seven of them out on the wind that Virgil offers. And then in this list itself, certain odd things happen and certain interpretive little problems happen. So let's just go back and take it from the start. The first of those whose stories you want to know, he then told me, was Empress of a Polyglot World. That's the first three lines of the first tercet. And what I want to stop on here is that word stories. I translated it stories. In the medieval Tuscan, it's novelle. Novelle is a strange word. It means news, but it is the root of our word novels. And I want to stop here a minute. If I wanted to be really crazy, I could have had Virgil say, the first of those whose novels you want to know <laughs> was Empress of a Polyglot World. But I want to stop on that word novelle, because novels start here. We're watching the beginning 
of the whole form of the novels. Novels are news. They're news you wouldn't know otherwise. They're imagined news. They're made-up news. And the news that they're made up about is what's important. Novels are glimpses into the private lives of individuals. That's what Portrait of a Lady is. That's what Great Gatsby is. That's what, I don't know, David Copperfield is. It's a glimpse into the private life of, well, characters who are alleged to be like people. So what we're about to see is a glimpse, not in this passage, in the next passage, a glimpse inside the private life, inside the bedroom life of two characters on the wind. That's for the next episode. But still, Virgil's onto something with this word novelle. He's using a very au courant word here in the Tuscan. And it's a au courant word that is still with us and still shows its form even now. Because again, what we're going to see is the love life of two characters in the next episode. Okay, moving on. The first of those you want to see and you want to know, the first of those whose stories you want to know, was the Empress of a Polyglot World, Virgil says. She got so rotted by the vice of lechery that she made lust legit in her laws. I just want to stop there. I translated lust legit in her laws because it's a it's a weird little mm, joke play on words in the Tuscan. Let me read it to you in the Tuscan. It's que libito fe licito who made, oh, how do I say this, who made lust licit. How's that? And so in the passage, these two words are separated by just the word fe made, libito, licito. There's one letter between them, libito, b, licito, c. There's one little letter between lust and legitimacy. And that's an important play in the text because it shows how quickly lust can slip to something legitimate. And most importantly, it's that she made lust legit in her laws. We'll talk about this in a minute. She made lust legal. To blot out the shame she'd brought on herself, she is Semiramis. Okay, so let's talk about Semiramis for just a second. Semiramis is a legendary Assyrian queen. She was the wife of Ninos, sometimes spelled Ninus in English, but Ninos in the Greek. She's a legendary figure out of the past. There probably is no Semiramis who ever lived. There probably is no Ninos who ever lived. The founder of Nineveh. She uh, basically, after her husband died, she assumed the throne and then what the story was the story that went around is that she legalized incest so she could marry her son this is not the story of the ancient world it is rather the story of the patristic and medieval world of christianity in the ancient world this legendary assyrian queen is quite honored and seen as a high figure that founded this giant assyrian empire and ruled it after her husband died in the Middle Ages, and well, actually in the Church Fathers, and then the Middle Ages, her reputation changes a great deal. It changes because of a disciple of St. Augustine, Orosius, or Orosius, Paulus Orosius, wrote a book, The Seven Books of History Against the Pagans, in about 400 Common Era. 
And Semiramis is one of the figures he picks out to show how horrid the pagans were versus how morally pure the Christians are. And what he picks out is this idea that she legalized incest to marry her son. Dante probably actually didn't get this story from uh, Semiramis from Orosius. He got it from another source. He got it from Brunetto Latini's Il Tesseretto, where she is held up again as this figure that lust took over and that she, in, it so took over that she legitimized incest in her realm. Latini picks this story up in Tesseretto. That's probably where Dante is getting it from potentially his teacher Latini. And you'll notice that she it says that um, she is Semiramis, we read that. So you note that this is bookish stuff, this this notion of Semiramis. Not we hear that or we know that. Virgil says we read that as if Virgil could have read Latini so many years after his own death. But okay, nonetheless, we read that as his wife, she succeeded Ninos and I added to the throne. It doesn't say that in the Tuscan. I added that so you'd know it just says she succeeded Ninos. That's what it means is to the throne. And then this line, and held the land that the Sultan now rules. This is a mistake. She did not hold the land that the Sultan now rules. It appears that Dante has confused Nineveh and or Babylon with maybe Baghdad or an Egyptian city with the Egyptian rulers of his day. He's made a mistake here in this line, and Semiramis is not connected. She's connected with Nineveh and Assyria, not with Baghdad or any Egyptian city at all. However, I actually love this line and this mistake, and here's why. This mistake helps me trust the text. Dante dies in 1321. The first manuscript we have of the comedy is from 1336. It's the Landiano manuscript. It's now in Piacenza. Uh, so there's about a 15-year gap between Dante's death and the first manuscript we have. We have no manuscripts in Dante's own hand. In those 15 years, commentaries are already being written about the comedy. So in that gap between Dante's death and the first known manuscript, 1336, we've got commentaries being filled in. And there's always a lot of mm, talk about what happened in that. Was there textual corruption in those 15 years? Have things changed? The text that most of us work with now is kind of a fusion of several of these manuscripts plus the commentary in which we can see early commentators quoting lines that may be in question. All of that, fair enough, and we can later get into the textual details of comedy. What I like is that in that 15-year gap, no one fixed this line. They let this line stand as an error in the text. And that says to me that the text is rather trustworthy. Oh, there's textual problems everywhere. We passed one in the last episode. But it says to me that the text is rather trustworthy. Because again, in those 15 years, no one bothered to fix this line and make it right. So I, I take that as a textual bit of mm, firm grounding that sits there in the text. So Enough about Semiramis, but enough to say that she gets nine lines, that's a lot in this canto, nine lines, and that she legitimized her lust by law. And this is going to play out next. Look who comes next. Next, Virgil says, is she who offed herself for love and ripped up her faithfulness to the ashes of Sicius. This is a paraphrastic phrasing, circumlocution, walking around phrasing for Dido. Dido is named later in the passage, the great love of Aeneas. 
If you know the story from the Aeneid, we're in Aeneid about book four, about line 550, I think, 555, somewhere right in there, where Dido makes the claim that her love for Aeneas is making her faithless to the ashes of her first husband, Sicaeus. That's a bit from the Aeneid, but Dante may actually know this from other sources. St. Augustine was very concerned about Dido, another figure of lust. She became in the Middle Ages kind of a symbol of illicit love, and it's all predicated on this notion that she had pledged her faithfulness to her first husband, who was killed by her brother Pygmalion. And then Aeneas comes along and she falls in love with him, and it's a whole tragic story, right? And she, he eventually sails to Italy because he's got Rome to found, and she climbs up on a funeral pyre in Carthage and, and immolates herself. What's interesting here is the reference to Sicaeus, her first husband, who was also her uncle. What did I just tell you about Semiramis? It's all about the incest to marry her son. Here's another example of incest, Dido. I realize that in the Aeneid that is not brought forward, but Dante would certainly know that story from other sources. It was a prime understanding of Dido in the Middle Ages. And then comes raunchy Cleopatra next. You know, Cleopatra, Anthony, Caesar, Octavius, Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> war and battle, died from an ass bite, you know, where she held the snake to herself. Oh, you know that whole thing. But there's something else about Cleopatra you should know. <laughs> Through the morganatic marriage of Egyptian monarchs, she married her brother, Ptolemy Thirteenth. All of her kith and kin married their own kith and kin. It's the way that the Ptolemaic dynasty was established in Egypt. They have three figures here, Semiramis, Dido, and Cleopatra, who all have incest sitting right behind them. And incest that changed the shape of their countries, their history. Dido's death destroys Carthage in the story. Semiramis, you know, she's seen, especially in medieval literature, as being punished for this. These people are all disrupting the civic and civil nature of society with their lust and, more importantly, their incestuous lust. It's all coming down to that, but there's one little problem. Back to that passage about Dido. Next is she who offered her love, Amorosa. Amorosa is a long way from libito felicito. Amorosa is love. I thought we were talking about lust. I thought in this passage and this circle of hell, these were all the lustful. Wait a minute, love? She who offed herself for love, love, the prime Christian virtue, as St. Paul says, faith, hope, and charity, but the greatest of these is love in 1 Corinthians. Love? And she offered, offed herself not for lust? Curious. Virgil goes on. Look at Helen, around, who's, around whom so many horrid times revolved. And we should just stop and say the first four of the seven figures are women. And it's not going to surprise us in the Middle Ages that there's a little bit of misogyny running underneath all of this. Helen doesn't have any incest attached to her the way the first three might. But Helen of Troy, her love, her lust, 
caused the gigantic conflagration that was the Trojan War. Notice again, this isn't just Valentine's Day love. This isn't just, oh, you know, so-and-so fell in love with his next-door neighbor and ran off with her and left his wife. This isn't that kind of lust. This is lust that disrupts civic society. And the next, look at Achilles, our first man, who waged a final battle with love. Remember, Dante has not read Homer. He doesn't know Homer's work. Dante knows of Achilles from Stasius, the Roman poet. And what he knows about Achilles is that he's a Greek warrior who fell in love with a Trojan woman during the Trojan War. Notice again, civic disruption. Look at Paris. Oh, see, uh, Paris. My gosh, the golden animals, all of Paris and all that problem. And then Tristan, and then ends with Tristan. Notice the list, again, as I said, is coming forward. It's ending with a figure from medieval romance. It's coming out of classical figures from way, way, way dark history, Semiramis. And it's coming all the way up to Tristan, one of the most popular medieval romances. Tristan and Isolde, who drank the love potion kind of mistakenly that was meant for others and fell in love with them with each other and caused an entire bloodbath to happen at the end because results uh, intended uh, found out about them i mean the, this is all lust as unbelievable disruption and that it all comes down to a medieval romance says a lot to me that this entire stream of thought about love comes down to Tristan and Isolde and these are all the people in hell says everything to me about Dante's belief that he's writing comedy not romance medieval romance is all about courtly love we'll talk more about that in the next episode is all about courtly love and a kind of love that is um, defies social norms to express itself but at what cost and it's coming out of a tradition that goes all the way back to incestuous figures in this passage so there's two more things I want to say about this before we turn to the poet's response. And this is a, these are both kind of quibbles that I think I can answer. So Dido's there. We've seen her. She offed herself for love and ripped up her faithfulness to the ashes of Sicius. And the question often arises, why isn't Dido among the suicides? If you've read comedy all the way through, you know there's an entire space part of one of the circles reserved for those who commit suicide. And why isn't Dido down there? Didn't she climb up on that pyre and emulate herself? Well, it seems as if Dante is looking for a motivation underneath the action. Her action may have been suicide, but he's trying to pin a motivation on her in an emotional framework, in lust, in love. Well, it says amorosa, so it's love. It seems like he's diving underneath the action to um, emotional motivations, which seems very modern. Okay, that's one question. Why is Dido here and not amongst the suicides? And one could say the same thing about Cleopatra. Why is she here and not among the suicides? And here's the second question. Why are any of these figures, Semiramis, Cleopatra, Helen, Helen, here's Helen Troy. We just blew right past her. Paris, why, are, why aren't they in limbo? Why are they here? Didn't they die before they could have been baptized or could have heard about 
Christ? Why, why would they be here amongst the lustful? So it really does seem that those in limbo lived exemplary lives before they died. If they were guilty of a sin, even if they didn't know about it, they get put down in hell. At least that's what this passage seems to argue. Because again, I would look at it and say, Helen, Helen, why she's not up there in limbo with all those people? Apparently her guilt Notice that she's guilty here. Her guilt has pushed her farther down into hell, even though she couldn't have known anything about Christian theology. Okay, one more bit about Virgil's point in this passage, and it's when the pilgrim enters it. He says he pointed out more than a thousand shades, named them to everyone whom love had cut off from our life. After I heard my teacher name the ladies of old and their knights, notice Dante interprets it anachronistically. He interprets classical figures through the lens of chivalry, ladies of old and their knights. Pity grabbed me, and I was almost lost. It's right here that I want to stop. Everyone whom love had cut off from our life, di nostra vita. Pity grabbed me, and I was almost lost, smarito. Remember those opening lines? <laughs> Nel mezzo del cammin di nostra vita, mira trovai per un selva oscuro che la darita via era smarita. Remember that? Di nostra vita, smarita. Those words are repeated here. Di nostra vita, smarito. I was almost lost instead of smarita back there. But Nonetheless, repeated right here, the verbiage. Why? We suddenly got a callback to the very first tercet of the entire comedy. You know why. Beatrice is sitting right behind this passage. She could only be sitting right behind this passage. This entire canto about lust has got to have something to do with Dante's affection, his driving lifelong affection for Beatrice even though he married someone else, even though he had children by someone else, even though his life never went in Beatrice's way. When in The New Life, Dante's only completed work before comedy, the scene in which he meets Beatrice is fraught. And in fact, he meets Beatrice, he sees Beatrice there, and the next thing he does in the book is dreams this wild sequence in which Beatrice basically eats his warm beating heart <laughs> out of the hand of an angelic figure. So that entire dream sequence of Beatrice literally consuming his heart in front of him has got to be sitting behind this somewhere. That's part of why it says next, when it talks about Dido, next is she who offed herself amorosa for love. What? Wait, love is slipping to lust. At first, it seems very orthodox. Libito, felicito. My gosh, look how fast you can just slip from lust to legitimacy. And then suddenly it starts to fudge. And then we get these echoes of that first bit. Di nostra vita, smarito. Is this the poet signaling us that this is why he got lost in the dark wood? Or is this the pilgrim himself signaling us that this is why he got lost? Or is it both of them together signaling? Or is it none of that? Is it a slip that allows us to see a crack in the text and a crack through which we might posit the motivation for the text? 
All of that is unclear. I can just point it out to you. Di nostra vita smarito. And believe me, there are dozens and dozens, hundreds, in fact, of scholars who have tried to solve this, who have come down on one side or the other. Oh, this is intentional. This is not intentional. This is a reference back. This is not a reference back. Clearly, I think it is. It's all about Dante's lust. It's not about Dante's lust. Dante is a much stronger and more forthright Christian figure than that. To me, the ambiguity of the passage is now beginning to weigh in on us. At first, it looked like, see what lust does? It disrupts the civil order. But now it suddenly starts to seem different. And now it's really going to change because now we come to the pilgrims section. I began, the pilgrim says, poet, I really want to speak with those two who go together and seem so light in the wind. Let me stop right there and stop on the words so light. Leggieri. Let's just stop on that for a second and think about these two. So here's all of these classical figures. They're floating all around up there. Dante the Pilgrim picks out two that are light. It would seem the classical figures, Cleopatra, Helen, they must be heavy. <laughs> They're heavy with history. They, 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 these are big, giant figures. Paris, Tristan, Achilles, Hill, Helen, Cleopatra, good grief. These are giant historical figures. And Dante wants to talk to the two who are so light on the wind. What does that mean, so light? Does it indicate their attitude to the wind, as in they're being blown about, but they just don't care that, you know, they're like, what wind? I don't know wind. <laughs> what wind is up here? I like the way I've suddenly turned them into people from Queens. What wind? Um, what wind? What's blowing me around? What, what is the deal with this? And I'm not bothered by this. Is that why they're so light? Or does it mean that they're lightweight? That they're, they're bouncing on the wind because these other figures are heavy and they're just bouncing around out there because they're so light. Why wouldn't Dante, the pilgrim, want to speak to one of the big ones? Wouldn't you want to talk to Helen? I'd want Helen to come over. Hey, Helen, come over here and tell me about the Trojan War. Tell me what happened. What, what's going on there? Why does he focus in on two who go so light? And is that so light because of their attitude or because they're lightweight? unclear. And then Virgil responds. And this is Virgil's last full tercet. This is the last full three-line bit that Virgil will speak in this canto. I'll speak one more time, but just a little fraction of a line. He's, he's This is his last bit, and it's a little bit weird. He says, you will see them when they get closer to us, then beg them by the love amor. The love that drives them and they will come to you. Amor. Now, you can claim that all of divine punishment is based on divine love. Of course, that's the theologically correct answer. But Virgil doesn't speak Christian theology. Remember, we've established that. Not one minute of Christian theology doesn't even seem to know who sits up on high other than an emperor sitting on a throne. So this amor... Well, you could give it that Christian spin. you got to work at it. Instead, it seems to me once more a slip between lust and love. Right when the wind bent them close to us, I spoke up. A worn-out cells come talk to us if no one disallows it. And before we get to the last simile on the passage ending, let me just stop here and say something about structure. Remember last time we had that giant double simile that had starlings <laughs> i think i trashed the starlings as trash birds i 
I dissed the poor starlings. And then cranes going over the sky, singing their sad songs. Their, the word is actually lays, a tradition of French love songs. Their lays over the sky. So there's, there's this uh, double simile. And then I told you it's going to work out in the next passage. Well, what we seem to have here is a chiasmus. That's a classical rhetorical strategy. We've already passed one of them, but let me do it again for you. A chiasmus is, is from the Greek word chi, the letter chi, which is an X. And it means that what we're getting is a crossing here. And it's basically in this form. You start with A, you go to B, then you go to B again, and then back to A. You see A, B, and then you reverse it, B, A. And that's how this is often read. So you have the starlings, and then the cranes, A and B. And now here you have the great people, Semiramis, Cleopatra, Achilles, Helen. So you're back to B, the cranes, the noble birds. And now you're coming out to A, the starlings and thus they're light on the wind bouncing around the way the starlings are so we've passed this rhetorical chiasmus with one problem we are told that the cranes are the ones who sing their sad songs or their lays like breton lays uh, they're the ones who sing their sad songs unfortunately or fortunately for the irony of the passage it is the starlings it is the ones blown lightly about the wind. It is the trash birds who, in the next episode of Walking with Dante, will sing their sad song. It is not the cranes. None of these big, emblematic, heroic, historical figures speak. None of them get a moment in which they tell their story. Instead, it is the starlings in this passage who will ultimately sing their song in the next episode of this podcast. So that's the first thing I want to point out to you. There's a chiasmus going on here, but it has an ironic undertow. Is that intentional? If it's intentional, the poet is unbelievably smart about crafting the narrative and inserting irony into the rhetorical structure. If it's not intentional, then it's even more interesting then the poem is escaping its poet. And what was intended, the noble cranes to tell the song, turns into something completely else in the poem. Okay, that last little bit, the last simile. As doves are drawn to their sweet nest with their wings open and firm, summoned by their desire, Dicio, the same word Beatrice uses to explain why she wants to go back into paradise. Dicio, desire, what's it doing right here? Summoned by their Dicio, moving on the air, wanting to land, just so these spirits slipped away from the flock near Dido. Now that paraphrastic phrasing of she who offed herself for love and ripped up her faithfulness to the ashes of Sicius is explained, Dido. In case you didn't get it, she's apparently the head chicken of this flock, <laughs> and came to us through the malevolent air. The critic R.A. Shove a long time ago divined a dove, for lack of a better word, a dove program in the comedy. That is that there are specific moments where doves enter into the text. And this is the first one here in Inferno. These two that are being called out are coming to Dante as doves. Later in Purgatorio, we're going to see an image of doves feeding quietly on the shores of this mountain that helps the redeemed purgate their final sins. And then up in Paradis, so saints 
James and Peter will be referred to as doves, as dove-like spirits coming toward the pilgrim. So we start with doves here. We move it into Purgatorio and we move it on out into Paradiso. And you'll notice that doves are being renovated over the course of comedy. Here, they are mm, lustful birds. Then they're getting more holy. And finally, they're these great saints of James and Peter up in Paradiso. That's all fine and dandy and lovely and all credit to Arya show for noticing this movement of doves throughout the poem however i will still say it's problematic because doves are emblematic of the third person of the trinity in christian thought they're emblematic of the holy spirit who descends like a dove and that these two are given what is traditionally a very strong trinitarian image of the holy spirit the dove that these two are called that oh it's a little troubling it's like that amor and amorosa in the text. It's a little troubling why it's there. If it said as crows drawn to their sweetness, <laughs> sounds so absurd, crows. But crows would be right for me, that cawing black, not so nice bird as crows are summoned to their nest and want to land in it. Then I would understand their moral character of these two characters. But that they're doves, I understand that there may be a renovation of doves over the course of comedy. But it's already a charged symbol by the time Dante picks it up right here. It's a charged symbol of the Holy Spirit. So here they come. And the last line, that's how strong... My endearing cry was, oh, that word, endearing. I translated endearing. You could say affectionate or heartfelt. Once again, a little troubling. My affectionate cry is so strong that I was able to call these two lovers off the wind and have them come to me. And we've already been told, remember earlier, pity grabbed me and I was almost lost and I just blew past it by making a reference to the first three lines of comedy smarito almost lost but let's come back to it and just sit on it for just a second almost lost we were told in the middle of the passage the entire purpose of comedy is to make Dante the pilgrim not lost anymore woke up lost in a dark wood got a pagan guide Virgil and now is on his way to being not lost and here the game is almost up I was almost lost it's almost as if we have slipped back into that first moment in comedy, not just with, with verbal references and allusions to the words themselves, but emotionally lost. How can you be lost? Beatrice has sent you a guide. You're walking across the universe. You're headed toward heaven. How can you possibly, Virgil told you you're headed toward heaven. How can you possibly be lost unless much more is going on in this passage then first meets the eye. But to know all about that, you got to wait for the next passage because you got to wait for them to show up because I can feel them. They're right behind me. If you know what's happening in comedy, you know who's coming. If you know your Tchaikovsky, you know who's coming. <laughs> I can feel Francesca looking at me and Paolo crying next to her. They're coming up. In the next episode of Walking with Dante, so subscribe to this podcast. 
rate it. That would be fabulous on Apple or Google. Give it a comment. That would be even more fabulous. I promise to come dance at your wedding. Somebody said in a comment on Apple that they wanted to have me for dinner after listening to this podcast. I thought, well, shoot, invite me. Um, <laughs> so, so rate it, subscribe, come back. And if you just dropped in here to this episode of Walking Tante, go back to the beginning. We've been walking all along. We got here the long way. We're way back behind us somewhere. It starts and you can come forward and we would love to have you on this journey with us because there is no work like comedy. There's no work as complex as comedy that I know of. There's nothing that even comes close to it. Go away, Hamlet. Go away, The Tempest. There's nothing. <laughs> Go away, Paradise Lost. There's nothing that comes close to it. Maybe Proust, but that's another story and another question which will never be answered on the podcast Walking with Dante. So I hope to see you back here soon.